0: In the late summer warmth of August 19, 1692, with the witch hysteria in Salem reaching a fever pitch, George Burroughs stood on a ladder above a gathering that was larger than usual. It seemed that more people had made their way to Gallows Hill that day just outside of town to witness the executions of five convicted witches. They might have been intrigued by the fact that four of the condemned were men, A highly unusual circumstance, to be sure. Or maybe it was because one of those men, the man standing on that ladder about to utter his final words, was their former minister. After these grisly executions were accomplished that day, a total of 11 people had been put to death in Salem for the crime of witchcraft in just over two months. It was a strange and gruesome summer, and the witch hysteria had grown into a major crisis. Sadly, it was not over yet. More executions would come in the weeks that followed. On this late summer day, however, as George Burroughs stood on that ladder, his own death just moments away, he made a particularly strong and impassioned plea for his innocence. And then, much to everyone's surprise, he followed this up with a flawless recitation of the Lord's Prayer. There was a strong belief at the time that a true witch would be incapable of reciting the Lord's Prayer. In fact, John Willard, another condemned man that day who must have been standing nearby when Burroughs spoke, had fumbled his own rendition of the prayer when he was asked to give it by his examiners months earlier. Many of those gathered at Gallows Hill were stunned as the prayer effortlessly flowed from Burroughs' mouth. It was even reported that a few of them were brought to tears and began pleading for mercy for Burroughs. He must be innocent, they thought, since he was able to utter the prayer. But the sheriff and the hangman were apparently unmoved by these shows of emotion. Compelled by their duty to the law, they carried out their gruesome task, and moments later, Salem's 42-year-old former pastor was no more. Perhaps it was because of the fact that George Burroughs was a Puritan minister, or perhaps it was a mere coincidence. But among those gathered in the crowd that day was the highly respected and well-known theologian Cotton Mather. And with people buzzing restlessly around him after Burroughs spoke the Lord's Prayer, Mather must have felt compelled to offer some sage words to calm the proceedings. Rising upon his horse, the Reverend reassured his fellow spectators by reminding them that George Burroughs had not been an ordained minister, and that, quote, "The devil has often been transformed into an angel of light." Mather’s words seemed to have their desired effect and the crowd settled. Yet being reminded by the land's most famed theologian that the devil could seamlessly masquerade in the body of any good person could hardly have offered much comfort to anyone. In a story filled with strange and unusual characters, George Burroughs' story is among the strangest of them all. The details of his early life are hazy. He was born around 1650, but the location of his birth is disputed. It might have been in Suffolk, England, where his mother was from. Or it might have been in Virginia, where his mother had lived after first arriving in America. Or it might have been in the seacoast town of Situate, in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. Whatever the case, Burroughs' father was unknown and played no role in his upbringing. George was raised entirely by his mother, and the two eventually settled in the town of Roxbury, Massachusetts, just south of Boston when he was a young boy. As a teenager, Burroughs attended Harvard College, which had been founded three decades earlier as the first institution of higher learning in America, largely to train Puritan ministers. He graduated in 1670, a young man ready to make his way in the world. By then, his mother had returned to England. Perhaps she had had enough of her hard-scrabble existence in America? Whatever the case, Burroughs was now alone a young man fending for himself in the new world. A few years later in 1673, George Burroughs married Hannah Fisher, who was from Dedham, a town located just a few miles south of Roxbury. The following year, perhaps unexpectedly, the couple made their way to Falmouth, Maine, along Casco Bay, in what is present-day Portland. This is where Burroughs took a job serving as a pastor at a small church in this frontier community. Why George and Hannah Burroughs decided to make their home on the rugged and often dangerous Maine frontier is unknown. In one of our earlier episodes, historian Mary Beth Norton told us about the surprising role that the frontier played in the lives of many of those who were involved in the Salem Witch Crisis. If you want to know more about this unique connection, I urge you to check out that episode if you haven't already. In spite of the initial hardship of living on the frontier in Maine, an area that was often known as the Eastwards in the 17th century, By the time the boroughs arrived in the 1670s, a number of English and French settlers who had made their fortune in the region, mostly by taking advantage of its abundant resources, particularly in timber, had softened the edges of this difficult place. But the decades-long encroachment of white settlers into the traditional lands of the Wabanaki people stoked tensions that seemed certain to boil over. In August 1676, that inevitability came to pass when Falmouth was attacked in a Wabanaki raid that was ostensibly part of the Northeast Coast Campaign of King Philip's War, a massive conflict between English settlers and native peoples that had broken out across most of New England at the time. The raid in Falmouth that August killed or captured about three dozen settlers, shaking the very foundation of their existence in the region. The settlers who had not been killed or captured in Falmouth, including the Burroughs family, were forced to flee to a tiny island in Casco Bay for safety. Eventually, these refugees, who beyond the Burroughs family also included Mercy Lewis and the families of both Abigail Hobbs and Susanna Sheldon, all of whom played a prominent role in Burroughs' own witchcraft conviction in Salem 16 years later, moved south to more hospitable lands. The Burroughs family settled first in Salisbury, Massachusetts, near the present-day border with New Hampshire, and not long after they made their way to Salem Village, when George Burroughs was hired as minister of the church. Meanwhile, Mercy Lewis was staying with relatives in Salem Town and both the Hobbs family and the Sheldon family would eventually make their way to Salem as well, some years later. In 1681, following the birth of their fourth child together, Hannah passed away. And Burroughs, who often struggled to receive his pay as minister in Salem Village, borrowed money from Captain John Putnam, a member of one of the village's most prominent families, for her funeral. This was perhaps the clearest indication that Burroughs' tenure as pastor, like those who served before and after him, was not so smooth. The fact was, being the minister at Salem Village Church was not for the faint of heart. Factional squabbles, land disputes, and a variety of other secular issues regularly spilled over into the church's business. And more often than not, these disputes seemed to lead to the minister not being paid. That's exactly what led the village's first preacher, James Bailey, to quit after only a few years on the job. Ultimately, Bailey left the church altogether to become a doctor. George Burroughs' tenure at the church was even shorter than Bailey's. By 1683, he had married his second wife, Sarah Ruck, and he was ready to leave the chaos of Salem Village behind. That same year, the Burroughs family packed up and made their way back north to Falmouth, Maine. Burroughs would try his hand at frontier life once again. While it is unclear what lured him back to Maine, it's notable that George Burroughs favored a demonstrably more dangerous and unsettling existence on the frontier over living in Salem, a place that should have been decidedly more stable and secure for him and his family. As a notably private man, Burroughs must have bristled at the bickering and backbiting that he must have experienced on a regular basis in the village. Perhaps he thought that he would find peace in the solitude of the frontier. Maybe he would find it strangely comforting that he and his fellow settlers would have to concern themselves about real threats to their safety rather than the frivolous, perceived threats that he must have so regularly encountered at the helm of the church in the village. For whatever reason, like so many others who had once lived on the main frontier, Burroughs returned there, despite the obvious dangers. Burroughs' second wife, Sarah, died in 1689, most likely after giving birth to their third child together. In September of that same year, the Wabanaki again attacked Falmouth. Burroughs survived once more, and this time, like most of the other settlers in Falmouth, he moved south to a more secure location. Burroughs settled in Wells, Maine, close to the seacoast on the New Hampshire border, And in 1690, he married his third and final wife, Mary. By the infamous year of 1692, George Burroughs was still trying to make his way in Wells, Maine, when on April 30th, Salem residents Jonathan Walcott and Thomas Putnam filed a complaint against Burroughs and five others on behalf of their daughters, Mary Walcott and Ann Putnam, as well as Mercy Lewis, Susanna Sheldon, Abigail Williams, and Elizabeth Hubbard, all of whom claimed to be afflicted. Others would soon join in, including Abigail Hobbs. The complaint accused their former minister of, quote, "...high suspicion of sundry acts of witchcraft." and a confederacy with the devil. George Burroughs was arrested by marshals who had traveled some 70 miles due north from Salem to take him into custody. Then, carrying him back in chains during the middle of a fierce thunderstorm, a natural occurrence that led some to believe that the devil had been trying to free him from those who were seeking justice. So why, seemingly out of nowhere, had the former minister of the Salem Village Church gotten caught up in the witch hysteria in Salem? After all, George Burroughs had been living far away from the town for nearly a decade. What was it about this man that raised so much suspicion among an already paranoid collection of people? After being arrested, taken into custody, and hauled back to Salem, Burroughs was privately examined before several magistrates on May 9th including, in a rare turn of events, Chief Magistrate William Staunton. It was a move that signaled how important a suspect Burroughs was for the authorities. Unfortunately for Burroughs, his answers to their questions only fueled their paranoia further. When the magistrates asked Burroughs when he last took communion, he was unable to recall. Burroughs also admitted that only the oldest of his several children had been baptized, both highly unusual circumstances, particularly for a member of the clergy. When Burroughs was questioned about a rumor that his home in Maine was haunted, he explained that it was not except for the toads, a creature that many people at the time believed served as a familiar or an animal given to witches by the devil to help them carry out their evil deeds. Burroughs denied the magistrate's accusations about mistreating his wives and forcing them to swear not to speak about him to others. Clearly, they seemed to think that their former minister had something to hide. When the afflicted girls were eventually brought into the examination room with Burroughs, they became, quote, grievously tortured. Both Susanna Sheldon and Ann Putnam claimed that the apparitions of Burroughs' two deceased wives appeared before them and told them that they had been murdered by their husband. Additionally, they claimed to see the ghosts of the wife and child of Reverend Diodat Lawson, the minister who had succeeded Burroughs at the Salem Village Church. Many of the afflicted girls also claimed that Burroughs had given them poppets, tiny dolls that many in paranoid-stricken Salem feared were used by witches to torment others. Mercy Lewis, who knew Burroughs from their days on the frontier and for a time even worked as Burroughs' housemaid, claimed that he, quote, "...carried me up an exceedingly high mountain." and showed me all the kingdoms of the earth and told me that he would give them all to me if I would write my name in the devil's book. Often over the course of the examination, when the afflicted girls tried to speak, they would choke or be struck silent at the slightest glance from burrows. The only physical evidence that the magistrates found were the bite marks on some of the afflicted girls that they claimed had been made by Burroughs' specter. Clearly, the now well-practiced afflicted girls were laying it on thick. When asked what he thought of these accusations, Burroughs said, that it was an amazing and humbling providence, but he understood nothing of it. Eventually, the afflicted girls were so overcome the authorities had to remove them from the room. At George Burroughs' trial before the special court of Oyer and Terminer in early August, much was made about his unusual strength. He was a small man, Yet, witnesses claimed to have seen him effortlessly lifting heavy kegs of molasses and carrying a large musket with only a lone finger. How could this be possible without the assistance of the underworld, they thought? He was also accused of speaking harshly to his wives and generally treating them poorly. Reverend Mather noted in his book Wonders of the Invisible World, published just after the hysteria ended, that Burroughs, quote, had been famous for his barbarous usage of his two successive wives. Thomas Putnam even wrote an embarrassingly fawning and obsequious letter to the magistrates, claiming to have unique insight into Burroughs' evil deeds, quote, "...which are high and dreadful, of a wheel within a wheel at which our ears do tingle." It was an avalanche of accusations and innuendo, coming from all sides. Afflicted girls, unafflicted adults, fellow members of the clergy, all seemed eager to vouch for George Burroughs' inherent wickedness the general assumption being that he was the ringleader of it all, perhaps because they could not fathom the idea that the ringleader might have been a woman. For many, it seemed the vision of Burroughs lording over a collection of witches fit neatly into their perception of what was happening in Salem that year. While he was hardly a stereotypical witch, for whatever reason, George Burroughs' so-called evilness seemed like a foregone conclusion to many in Salem. But like so much about this story, there are more questions than answers. George Burroughs, like the rest of us, was not a one-dimensional being. It was certainly possible that he had a bad temper and that he was a strict and unkind husband, not unlike many men of his time. But did those things make him the ringleader of a group of evil witches who were tormenting the community with abandon? In truth, Burroughs was a highly private and secretive man who did not seem comfortable in the role of public figure like most members of the clergy. After having spent years of his life on the frontier, Burroughs was an outsider to many, making him a convenient target to others. And there can be no question that his short and turbulent stint as minister of Salem Village Church must have helped to set the stage for his prosecution when the witch hysteria bubbled over. George Burroughs' fate had been sealed by the time he was taken into custody by the marshals in early May. The judgment had been made even before the justices had passed down their decision. Perhaps they saw Burroughs as a convenient ringleader, a fallen clergy member who had sold his soul to the devil. Whatever the case, George Burroughs seemed to be among the most prominent scapegoats of the entire crisis. After Burroughs' execution, Reverend Mather had not changed his tune, at least not yet. Noting in his book Wonders of the Invisible World that, quote, he would be glad if he had never known the name of this man. The case of George Burroughs illustrates how our own desire for justice in the midst of a crisis often supersede our notions of rationality. It's a tragic lesson that remains elusive to us even to this day.